Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, along with a bunch of audio files and an increasingly keen appreciation of ice and storms and how they take the edge off being inside. In this week's collection, Jennifer Walsh keeps watch on the shutters of a premises in North London, Paddy Woodworth wonders if anthropomorphism is really so bad, Flautistima Mayock and friends go down for the second time into the song collecting of Canon James. Goodman, and a few short minutes from now, Rob Long will be missing out on walking down the aisle to the sound of Prince. But first, who'd have thought takeaways would be such a staple of a dystopian horoscope? In North London, composer and artist Jennifer Walsh is welcoming the return of a neighbourhood favourite to her table, and at the same time, noticing everything that going out for dinner has to offer. Close to our flat here in London, there's a restaurant we love called Jishan. Jishan, exquisite Indian food since 1990, the sign reads. During the first lockdown, we worried about Jishan. We hoped they'd survive having to close for so long. As the restrictions eased, rumours swirled for weeks in the neighbourhood. Jashan was open again for takeout, but you needed to phone a secret, unlisted number. You needed to call by in person at a specific time when the shutters would magically lift. When Jashan finally reopened, we ordered a massive takeout. I'll never forget the taste of that first post lockdown Jashan, paneer. Tikka Lababdar, King Prawn Pumpkin, Chicken Tikka Jalfrezi. As we ate, we weren't thinking about restaurant ambience. We weren't thinking about the many meals we've eaten there with so many friends and family. We were lost in the vivid sensory experience of Jishan. The sheer joy of eating food we could never make. Food that tasted like life before the pandemic. Exquisite Indian food indeed. Like all of us, I've thought about food a lot during the pandemic. But now, a year in, I feel a loss that goes far beyond the pear and almond scones at Lena's or the Zaru Gomadare at Koya. I miss, I so deeply miss... The experience of long, gentle meals with those dearest to me. Close to my mother's house in Carrick-on-Shannon is the Oarsman, one of the finest gastropubs in Ireland. I've eaten countless meals at the Oarsman, many meals during which I quietly laid out my troubles or listened to someone else laying out theirs. I don't remember what I ate during those meals, though I know the food was excellent and that there was live acoustic guitar. What I do remember is conversations meandering from wild laughter to hushed intimacies and the relief of finally being able to set a burden down. These sorts of meals 
these sorts of exchanges where we listen to each other's joy and pain and hopes and fears, where we reach across the table to comfort one another, where we lean deep into each other's lives and stay till closing. They need time and space. They need starters, mains and shared desserts. They need three hours minimum in a cosy restaurant with sensitive waitstaff. I don't miss fancy food anymore. I miss those conversations. I miss what those conversations do for us. The way a long meal with a friend can leave you floating home on a midweek night to the best sleep you've had in months. Jennifer Walsh there, tasting Uttar Pradesh, but dreaming of Carrick on Shannon. And the music was courtesy of Clankbuild and Freesound.org. And next, a trip to the pre-famine sound world of the west of Ireland. Flautist, whistle player and piper Ema Mayock in a trio with Mick O'Brien and daughter Aoife Nivrian are on a mission to get the song-collecting work of James Goodman on record. They began in 2013 with their first set of tunes taken from the 19th century song collectors' gatherings. Now the trio is diving again into that pool for a new collection. More tunes from the Goodman manuscripts. Ema Mayock's spoke from her Mayo home to culture files Louise McMahon about bringing Goodman's treasure to the surface. Sometimes, you know, in melodies, one little change makes a huge difference. So in Goodman, you're going, oh, I know that tune well. Oh, yeah, that's the same version. And the next thing you stumble across these two bars and you go... That's a different tune altogether. Goodman was born in 1828 and he died in 1896. He lived in the parish of Ventry in West Kerry. He spoke the Irish language and he played the flute, he played the pipes, he sang. And he was a clergyman of the Church of Ireland. He worked his life in Cork. From 1879, he was Professor of Irish at Trinity College, Dublin. What really interests me a lot is that he lived in the community. He knew the music, he knew the language, he knew the songs, and he knew the people. What's interesting about him as a collector, which he collected music all his life, is that he understood integrally what was going on, and he didn't, as a collector, come into a community and then collect and leave and then go to another community. The actual tunes in the manuscripts, it's kind of potted because they all come from him, you know, in terms of what he collected and what he encountered. I guess his association with Trinity College meant that the manuscripts were given to Trinity after his death. And I know that the collector, Brendan Brannock, was going into the archives and to the library in Trinity to have a look at them. When Brendan died, Dr Hugh Shields took on that work, preparing Goodman's manuscripts. So that was volume one. That was the first time Goodman's music was made available in book form. Hugh 
sadly passed away. His wife, Lisa Shields, had worked with him all along the project and she was involved then in the completion of Volume 2 that was published then in recent years. So now we have quite a healthy bulk available to us as musicians to go through. of such significance is that it's music of the southwest of Ireland, traditional music, as it was sung and as it was played, notated by somebody with absolute knowledge of the music. This was mostly done before the 1840s. As you know, traditional culture was nearly wiped out in many parts of the country because of the famine and what ensued after. The music and song was hugely affected by that. The Irish word for manuscript is Law of Scrivini, handwritten, and he had a beautiful hand, absolutely gorgeous writing. Manuscript writing takes on a kind of a personality and a, a flair of the person who writes it. He collected all his life, you know, it's quite incredible. And he had like little notebooks as well, and he had what they used to call fair copying. It's like the good copy. <laughs> That's when you were ready to really kind of commit something to paper. In some ways, it would be lovely to publish them in their actual printed form. I suppose for the sake of clarity and all the people who worked on kind of deciphering what did he mean here or what he didn't or trying to get it as faithful as possible, it's printed and that's a huge service to us to have them out there. As a player, you kind of make decisions when you play it. You go, I'm wondering if he really meant a C-sharp to go in there. It doesn't really sit in our modern ear. Or else you might think, okay, maybe he got that from a musician who came from a particular area where that was a version. Or, you know, so there are those kind of decisions that Goodman asks you to make. He mightn't have consciously wanted us to make those decisions. But when you approach it, you find yourself doing that. Though we have tunes in the manuscripts that were unheard of before by the modern musician, there are also versions of tunes that we would recognise from our modern tradition and are well known. But then you will find a version of a reel that's well known or a jig or a hornpipe and there'll be this amazing maybe two or three bar sequence that's completely different and it's a total change in the way that you hear and perceive and play the tune. That's really beautiful. Sometimes, you know, in melodies, one little change makes a huge difference. So in Goodman, you're going, oh, I know that tune well. Oh yeah, that's the same version. And the next thing you stumble across these two bars and you go, that's a different tune altogether. got a lot of his tunes definitely from a piper called Kennedy, the so-called K tunes. But then there are types of tunes where the three of us as we go through the manuscripts say I don't think he got those from the guy or the woman down the road you know. So a musician's own personal repertoire doesn't always just extend to what's 
there in the tradition around them. They may like to play music from other traditions and other genres. So I think there's a little bit of that in the manuscript as well. recorded a lot of this record in the traditional music archive on Marine Square. We would just go in every day and tackle some more tunes. I suppose from the very beginning of this project, we never really kind of went out to sort of faithfully represent a manuscript. We don't play exactly what Goodman wrote. We play our interpretation of what works for us as a trio together. We kind of have changed some of the tunes. There's one on this uh, record that's just written real but we actually thought it worked better as a polka so we turned it into a polka and we all feel that that's our particular interpretation of the music and that we're doing this in the 21st century and this is who we are as musicians and we're not really exactly sure how they played it in the 19th century so that's also a part of the kind of you know a unique approach by three people because this is how we have endeavoured to engage with the manuscripts Ema Mayock there and the reporter was Louise McMahon. More tunes from the Goodman Manuscripts is available on bandcamp.com and in general from Custy's traditional Irish music shop in Ennis where fresh supplies are on the way. Custy's treasure stocked online shop is at custysmusic.com. Most perfect reproduction of a work of art is lacking in one element. Its presence in time and space, its unique existence at the place where it happens to be, where it happens to be. This unique existence of the work of art determined the history to which it was subjected. This includes the changes which you may have suffered in physical condition over the years, as well as the various changes in its ownership, where it happens to be, where it happens to be. Traces of the first can be revealed only by chemical or physical analysis, which it is impossible to perform on a reproduction. The changes of ownership are subject to a tradition which must be traced from the situation of the original, the present. Of the original is the prerequisite to the concept of authenticity. Is the prerequisite to 
Next on the Culture File Weekly, we're back running our fingers along the spines of Paddy Woodworth's ideal collection of nature writings and nature writers. For this latest addition to our ever-growing naturalist bookshelf, we come to M for Maybe Richard, the British author of the endlessly republished Food for Free, as well as the book Paddy introduces this time, Nature Cure. Culture isn't the opposite of nature. Richard Maybe writes in his book, nature cure. Culture is the interface, he says, between us and the non-human world. Our species' semi-permeable membrane. We constantly refer back to the natural world to try and discover who we are. And this book tells us a great deal about who Maybe is as he tries to reinvent his broken relationship with nature during a prolonged and severe midlife depression. He offers us a route home to what he sees as our proper place on this earth, to become awakeners, celebrators, to add our peculiar singing to the rest of the natural world. In one very memorable passage, maybe vividly portrays dozens of red kites. These are big but elegant birds of prey, with distinctive russet and ermine plumage. He describes them as if they were social dancers, collectively juggling the wind as sunset approaches one evening. Incidentally, since red kites were reintroduced to Ireland 12 years ago, you can now see this magical flight display on any clear winter evening from the bridge in Avoca County Wicklow, current restrictions permitting, of course. Maybe's account of the kites is not only a superb rendering of animal behaviour into human language, though it is all of that. But even more striking is Maybe's daring willingness to enter imaginatively into what the kites might be feeling and doing. A willful, gratuitous relishing of the wind, he says. A carnival of solidarity at the end of the day. Now these phrases challenge two orthodoxies of Darwinist natural history. Though Charles Darwin himself, a more complex man than some of his disciples, might well have applauded Maybe's response to the birds. One such orthodoxy is that nature is driven entirely by self-interested competition. Cue Richard Dawkins' influential book, The Selfish Gene. The suggestion that the kites, or elsewhere in Maybe's book, even orchids, may be behaving gratuitously, paints a rather bigger picture of the nature of nature. The second orthodoxy is that we must steadfastly resist all anthropomorphism, any temptation to attribute our emotional or imaginative traits or even individual agency, to other species. The notion that the kites may be acting willfully 
is thus more than a little heretical. But if you think about these orthodoxies for just a moment, it seems obvious that they contradict themselves. Competition, as interpreted by some natural scientists, often sounds remarkably like the very human ideology of unregulated capitalism. Nothing more anthropomorphic than that. Maybe is probably reflecting what many of us feel when he writes that what happens in nature is too extravagant, too excessive, to be simply utilitarian. He even dares to take the revered David Attenborough to task for sometimes framing the natural world as a simplistic and competitive sex and violence drama. Maybe his own approach in this book is not systematic. It is rather like his own description of Gilbert White's seminal early natural history essays. Disorganised, anecdotal, affectionate. Here, maybe is a rambler and a magpie. But his insights do not negate science. They draw from it and they enrich it. And the sense of disorganisation is essential to the truth of his book, which is, above all, a memoir, and echoes the messiness of bad passages in our interior lives. Maybe fell into depression in his early 50s, and this was the peak of his career. From the Forager's Bible, Food for Free, to the sumptuous and monumental Flora Britannica, he had long been acclaimed as one of the very best natural history writers of his generation. So it's important to understand that this book is not about a nature cure in the common sense of the phrase. Yes, getting outdoors, as we are often told, does help lighten dark moods. But maybe had been exposed to woods, hills and water bodies all his life. His problem was that he had lost his nature mojo. He had become a mere ecological voyeur. He felt separated from landscapes and from their creatures by a glass wall of anxiety when he could still bear to look at them at all. His heart no longer lifted with the first celandine of spring, or with the first swift of summer. A root of this depression, he argues, was a natural science confined to the naming of parts and simplistic models of cause and effect. This model, he argues, was unhelpful in describing a world in which memory, feeling, spontaneity, and a growing sense of the wholeness of things are intertwined. Through a process driven in no small part by his own new sexual relationship, nothing more natural than that, surely, he rediscovers in nature his powers of imagination and what he calls the basic biological urge to play. And it is indeed a cure for the reader to witness how the book itself moves from hesitant, halting nature writing in the first half reflecting Maybe's own misery, to starburst accounts of drumming snipe and dancing cranes in the later pages, informed by science but illuminated with imagination and, why not, with love.
Paddy Woodworth there on Richard Maybe's Nature Cure, our latest suggestion for a place on the naturalist bookshelf. And finally this time we have the latest from Rob Long, who in the season of Valentine's has been letting his mind drift back to love's lost, mainly in a search for what exactly makes for good dialogue. This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. A great actor once explained to me how he saw his job. The goal of great acting, he said, is to make bad dialogue unnecessary. Which sort of makes sense, really. I mean, it's insulting to the writer, but it makes sense. A good actor makes the moment clear with his or her face and body and tone. A good actor fills in a scene with richness and life so that the dialogue doesn't have to be so on the nose. A lot of what writers put into the first draft of a script is declarative bad writing, people announcing how they're feeling, characters delivering really bald exposition, and they do this because before a script gets produced, it first gets read, and read very quickly, and often the reader needs a little help to get the scene. I know a writer for whom every piece of dialogue seemed angry until he gave most of his characters this piece of dialogue. Hey, I'm not angry. And that really seemed to cut way down on the feedback he'd get on every script, which was, why is everyone so angry? They're not, see? They just said they're not. And that worked. And one of the hallmarks of a truly awful drama is when one character looks out over an autumnal landscape and pulls a shawl tightly around her shoulders and says meaningfully, it's getting colder. Of course, the difference between bad dialogue and great dialogue is often just the context. In real life, where I unfortunately spend most of my time, often the snappiest comeback I can come up with is a string of obscenities. Nobody talks like that, is what we sometimes say when we're criticizing the dialogue in a movie or television show, as if the way people really talk, with grunts and trail-offs, and sometimes just sometimes just one or two words repeated in different tones, like, uh, whatever, just, you know, whatever, just whatever, which sort of makes sense when you're in an argument with a friend. In fact, in that context, it sounds like a rather eloquent and devastating rebuttal, but if you write those words down and try to call it dialogue, you're going to get in trouble. Once, and this is going to get personal, so apologies, I went to the wedding of an old college fling. Well, you know, not exactly a fling, but a little more serious than that. Okay, a lot more serious than that. And and now, here's where it gets humiliating. Our first moment together in college was accompanied by someone at a party playing the song Purple Rain by Prince. And I will pause here while you snort derisively and judge me. Whatever, just whatever, just whatever. And what surprised me years later at the wedding was just how depressed I was. I mean, for all the obvious reasons I'm not going to bother going into, and for some I don't know you well enough to share, the whole thing just depressed me because, though by then I was a television writer and producer with some solid credits and a couple of TV series of my own, it was still weird and aching to realize that Off and On wasn't ever going to be on again. And then the wedding band started playing Purple Rain and... Now, do I have to pause again for you to snort and judge, or can you save it all up for when I'm done? Well, so even though I was a writer and a published author at the time, and I owned a fancy car and knew the difference between good dialogue and bad dialogue, I knew that this was the right moment to leave. You're not leaving, she asked. Yes, I said, and pointed to the band playing Purple Rain. This is where I came in. 
which would be bad dialogue in a movie, probably, but in real life, where we're not always such good actors, it seemed pretty good. And so that's my 2021 New Year's wish to you, and to me too, for that matter. Let's hope that this year is filled with bad dialogue in real life, which for most of us would be a truly great thing and is much better than even the best dialogue on a screen. And that's it for this week. Next week, we'll join the mob for Martini Shot. This is Rob Long. Rob Long there, getting caught in the purple rain, and at the same time bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. He and the rest of us will be back with more well-aimed parting shots next week. Meanwhile, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, though I suspect if you haven't by now, it's not just a memory lapse. Anyhow, bye now.